Let me read again uh, the words that uh, we heard for a call to worship from Psalm 33 because uh, it calls us to praise. Um, Shout for joy to the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. As we look at two passages of scripture, we're going to finish reading Psalm 33. And then I've been uh, working through 1 Peter, and we're going to turn to 1 Peter 1 uh, for our sermon text. But let's stand and hear God's word, first of all, from uh, Psalm 33. And we're going to pick up at verse 6. This is a psalm I was reading yesterday, and it just struck me as being a wonderful encouragement about what God has done for us. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From whom, from, excuse me, from where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. And then in 1 Peter, we're going to read the first uh, 12 verses of chapter 1. 1 Peter We're going to read the first 12 verses, chapter 1. God's word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, 
may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in whom, uh, in the things that are now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is God's word. I said, have a seat. That last phrase, into which we're going to look at that next week. That just stuns me. Angels long to look. Whoa. Um, well, I usually try to help um, those who are younger to think about uh, some things we're going to talk about. And I'm going to tell you about my grandfather, my mom's dad. His name was Hammond Nicholson Einstein. And I never met him. He died a couple of years before I was even born, so I never even met him. But I heard about him. I heard that he was uh, a pharmacist. He made up medicines that helped people. Um, he uh, gave things away to people who, who didn't have any money. Uh, he was very kind. I know he loved his wife and his children because he had five children and my mom was one of them and he loved her. I know he loved books because I have some of the books that he had. So I know that people respected him, but I never saw him. I never met him. So I only know about him because I've heard other people talk about him. Well, we have not seen Jesus, have we? We haven't seen Jesus, but we have a whole book, this book, the Bible, that talks about Jesus. And so we can learn about him and want to see him too, because I want to see my my grandfather, who I believe was a Christian and is in heaven right now with Jesus. And we can learn about Jesus and learn to want to see him. So that's what we're talking about today. 
wanting to see Jesus. So uh, can you close your eyes so we can pray? Okay. Father, we pray that you'll help us uh, to look at your word. Help me uh, to be faithful to your word and help us all to think about Jesus, to think about what that means to see him and uh, to love him even without having seen him. Uh, You alone, Lord God, by your Holy Spirit can awaken our hearts. We can't do it ourselves, but you, by your spirit, can. And so we pray that you might. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, if you, like me, thought about the uh, the disciples in uh, Luke 24, they're on the road to Emmaus, and they have Jesus with them explaining the scriptures. <laughs> that gets me. Everything concerning himself from the scriptures. You think about that. How long did that last? <laughs> How many hours were they walking and talking? Um and we, we envy them. Uh, or Peter and James and John uh, there on the Mount of Transfiguration. What must that have been like to have seen Jesus in, in what really becomes his resurrection glory? Well, um, to the people that Peter is writing to, uh, they hadn't seen Jesus. They hadn't experienced what Peter, James and John or the other disciples had experienced there there was probably still people alive you know people uh, like Peter who had seen and been with Jesus but uh, these people themselves hadn't met Jesus and here we are in the 20th century moved from the first century by uh, all these years and all this distance and we haven't seen Jesus and yet we're called to love him that's what we're thinking about today just like us, these first century Christians experienced all sorts of trials and things that would make them question whether Jesus loved them. Why is this happening to me? That, that hymn that we sang, Whate'er my God ordains is right. You know, you may feel that. Why me? <laughs> Why this happening to me? Uh, and yet God does it. So we're going to look at three things. Faith, love, and salvation. Faith, love, and salvation. Uh, because in verses 8 and 9, those are the verses we're looking at. We see all those three things. Listen to them again. Verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory the salvation of your souls. Now, think about Peter. Peter with Jesus. Peter listening to Jesus for three years. Peter seeing Jesus talking to the crowds, multiplying loaves and fish. Think about that. What would that be like to to see you, you brought the basket to Jesus and Jesus picks up one of the loaves, breaks it, and he goes into the basket, picks up another loaf, and he keeps doing that till over 5,000 people are fed. And you're saying, who is this? Or you're in the boat and there's a storm. 
and Jesus tells the storm winds, the ocean wave or the sea waves, to be calm, and they're calm. And like the disciples say, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? You're Peter, and you're seeing Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, clothed in his glory with Moses and Elijah, and God speaking from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And, and then you see Jesus crucified. Now Peter will talk about Jesus in his glory. He gets to that in Second Peter. But the thing he focuses on, the thing that runs through this letter, is Jesus in his suffering. Jesus in his dying. Chapter 1, verse 2, verse 11, verse 19. Chapter 2, verses 21 to 25. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 13. Chapter 5, verse 1. All those places, Peter's talking about Jesus in his suffering. Now, we as people in this world face our own suffering and we can know that Jesus the son of God has also seen suffering so what does Peter say he says though you do not now see him you are not now seeing him this is the characteristic way that Christians live we live not seeing Jesus however long you've been a Christian unless I'm mistaken, you haven't seen Jesus. Yet you believe in him. John Wesley didn't see Jesus. John Calvin didn't see Jesus. Augustine didn't see Jesus. John Piper doesn't see, well, I don't know about John Piper. Tim Keller doesn't see Jesus. We don't see Jesus in this world. That's the characteristic state of the Christian's life. Yet we're to believe in him. He says, though you have not now seen him, you love him. And this love is not the romantic, sentimental love. This is the agapao kind of love. The dying to self sacrifice for yourself self-denying love that we're to show to Jesus how does that work in your life how does it work in your life to love Jesus with that kind of love that kind of self-denying love well if you have known me for any period of time you know I love to quote Galatians 2.20 I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Dan knows that verse, right? So what does it mean to love, be loving him? Love him with that self-giving love well, it's to deny yourself, to appreciate who he is, to be filled with wonder at who he is and 
what his suffering was for you. One of the preacher's stories that I've always loved is the story about a boy who was embarrassed by by his mother always wearing gloves. He couldn't understand why she always wore gloves. He, he wanted her to, to not wear the gloves when his friends were around. And she took off the gloves one day and showed him her hands. Her hands were horribly scarred because she'd been burned. But she'd been burned rescuing him when he was a baby in a fire. And then, as the writer said, he came to love those hands. He came to love what she had done. So when we think about Christ, we love him because of what he's done. And we're starting to say, what can I do in my life that demonstrates my love for Christ? Christ loves the church. Do I love the church? Is my life marked by love for the church? Christ is patient with me. Am I patient with other people in the way that Christ is patient for me, with me? Does Christ rule my priorities, my loves? Are there other things that intervene? I I just can't find time to read the Bible. I can't find time to pray because I've got other things I'm going to do. Or do I love Christ so I make that a priority? Job says, oh, that I, knew, that I knew where I might find him. Talking about God. Do we search for Christ in his word? Do I love Christ enough that I spend some time in his word thinking about him and how he's revealed in his word? Now, our love is flawed. Our love is often weak. We can't dredge up more love for Christ by looking inside of ourselves. But we love because we think about his love for us. It's his love. Remember that verse in Galatians. I'm crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. In the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The more we think of the love of Christ for us, the more we come to love him. And we seek to please God because the Father loves his Son. And if we don't love what the Father loves, do we really love the Father? And the Holy Spirit is given to reveal Christ to us. Do we love what the Holy Spirit values and treasures, namely the Son of God? If we're not in Christ, of course, none of this is going to happen. Because if we're not in Christ, if we've not come to Christ in faith, then we have no way to love Christ. We have no power in ourselves to love him. We are dead in our sins and unable to come to God because we do not trust the Son. So if we take faith in Christ, if we have faith in Christ, we should be loving him. So that's what uh, Peter says. Though you have not now seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you rejoice in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, 
the salvation of your souls. We believe in Christ, and this is the other characteristic pattern of the Christian life. The Christian life is marked by loving Christ, continuing to love him, and by continuing to believe in him. There are so many people, as Jesus gave us in the parable of the sower, who begin well. They begin the Christian life with this excitement. Uh, They might even be out witnessing to people, and yet it doesn't last. And so believing in Christ over the long haul is what Peter's talking about. Believing in Christ becomes a habitual activity for the Christian. Are you believing in Christ now? Are you going to believe in him tomorrow? Sometimes it seems like the strength of our faith waxes and wanes. That's because we in ourselves are weak and failing Christians. But since faith is a gift from God and God's gifts are irrevocable, God doesn't draw that faith back, we will continue to believe. There's a whole chapter in that on that in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Saving grace, as the Westminster divines put it, those and those who truly believe in Christ is a seed that will not die. Now, this faith is necessary because multitudes saw Christ and didn't believe. Think of the multitude there Uh, uh, when Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, he had fed them and he preached to them and he told them truth from God and yet many walked away. They walked away because they were not born again. They were not changed. Charles Spurgeon preached to thousands of people. He preached to Benjamin Franklin and yet how many people perhaps even Benjamin Franklin, walked away not having in anything. Uh, Excuse me, that's George Whitfield. George Whitfield not having believed anything that George Whitfield said because it's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit captures our hearts, brings us into submission to the Word of God, to believe the Word of God. We cannot charge God with failing the unbeliever. Unbelief is a sin. But we believe because God in grace weakens our hearts. It's a blessed thing to believe without seeing, Jesus says in John 20, 29. It's a blessed thing because it gives glory to God. We can only believe because God works that faith and repentance in us. So, What do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is as he presents himself in the Gospels, one who receives those who are weak, wounded, struggling? I love the passage there in the scriptures that tell us Jesus does not quench the smoking flax or break the bruised reed because sometimes we all feel like that, don't we? like the smoking flax or bruised reed. We feel like we're hardly holding on. And yet Christ holds on to his weak and erring children. He's the Savior who doesn't abandon us when we seemingly are 
weak in our faith. So the Westminster Confession, or Shorter Catechism, says saving uh, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone to us in the gospel. Is Christ ours by faith? So is our life characterized by loving Christ, believing in Christ, and finding salvation in Christ? Now, Peter talks about salvation in several places in this whole passage in chapter 1. In verse 9, he comes back to it. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, he says, the salvation of your souls. This is the third of the three participles that he uses. So we have the participle loving, the participle believing, and now the participle receiving. Receiving is the characteristic of the Christian's life. We are receiving Christ. It is actually a present participle and a middle. That means it's passive. We're receiving. It's done to us. So we are living in the receiving of Christ. That deliverance from the guilt, penalty, and power of sin uh, that comes through Christ. And so Christ promises to never, never cast us out. I love those words there in John chapter 6. He will never lose any who have come to him. Now, theologically, we talk about faith as the alone instrument of salvation. That means that to receive the blessing of salvation from sin's guilt, penalty, and power, it's the only means by which it comes, just a simple laying hold of Christ, a simple believing what God says. I believe in Christ because the Holy Spirit has convinced me of that fact. I have trusted that he will save me in the final day, that though I deserve condemnation, I will not be condemned. I believe that Christ has fully paid for all my sins, so fully that my sins are not accounted to me anymore. That in itself is such a remarkable thing. I believe that Christ has called me his child and he has sent his Holy Spirit to work in my life. I receive Christ by faith. So I love Christ by faith you might say and I'm believing in Christ because I've received him and I'm laying hold of him my life is characterized by continually coming to Christ if you're getting what I'm meaning salvation from sin as Peter says is the end of our believing the salvation which is past present and future a salvation that means that not only are we now children of God, but we will be children of God for all eternity in the presence of God. We do this in the face of what the world around us tells us is foolishness. Why do you believe in an unseen Savior? 
If people challenge you, why do you believe in Jesus? Why do you have faith in him? Why do you love him? Why do you say you love him anyway? If you can't see him, why? Why? Our world doesn't exist on fantasies. I mean, lots of people enjoy fantasy games and fantasy novels and fantasy movies. But we have to live in the real world, don't we? So if you're living in the real world, why do you believe in Jesus? If you haven't been convinced by the Holy Spirit, if you've just worked yourself up to believe in Jesus, it's not going to last. It's going to go away. You're not going to have any real joy in your life. You're always going to be teetering. Because Peter tells us something here that it almost takes my breath away. You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Do you have any joy in your life? Do you have a joy in belonging to Christ? Does it ever just almost knock you off your feet to think that the Son of God would die for me and he would pay every penalty that's due me? Does that ever just take your... Peter almost is at a loss for words. Rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. It's a, it's a word that's hard to translate. It only appears here in the whole New Testament. Uh, it means it can't be spoken. <laughs> There's no way to put it into words. The joy that a Christian should have in thinking about Christ, meditating on Christ and his sacrifice for us, is just breathtaking like standing on a vista and looking out and seeing a range of mountains. You go over to the Blue Ridge and you stand on the overlook and you see those mountains stretching out. It just takes your breath away. And this is greater. Jesus' love for you. If you're his child, it's filled with glory. The anticipation of glory, but also glory right now. The knowledge that you bear his name, bear his bear his mark, you might say, his stamp, his brand. You're not of the devil's herd anymore. <laughs> You're of Jesus' herd. Is Jesus a treasure to you? When I was growing up, I was a big one for treasures, treasure maps. I would draw treasure maps, and we had a big uh, marble top table, and it had a shelf underneath to support the table. And I'd draw my little treasure maps of caves and ladders and all that kind of stuff, tunnels and everything, and uh, at the end would be treasure. And I'd fold up those maps very carefully, and I'd stick it up in that little shelf underneath the marble top table. I'd hidden my treasure map and then I could go back and open up my treasure map. Now there wasn't any treasure because there weren't any caves <laughs> but I loved it. I loved the thought of the treasure. 
Jesus is not an imaginary treasure. X doesn't mark the spot. This book tells us about him. You can find all the treasure you need, all the treasure in the world in the Son of God. Do you find him that way? Do you have joy in Christ? Do you believe in him, though you can't see him? Do you want to see him? Just like I want to see my grandfather. Do you want to see him? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would keep us all. You alone, by your Holy Spirit, can keep us all so that we can come to that day, that day of rejoicing, to see the Son of God uh, who loved us and gave himself for us. I pray that no one here, young or old, would be unbelieving, but believing and rejoice in that day and rejoice now in that day to see him is beyond glory. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn to a closing hymn.